If you'd like, you can turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. That is where we will be this morning. Revelation 14, starting in verse 6. Now, people often ask, what is it that makes Adventists unique? What what makes Seventh-day Adventists set apart from from other denominations? And the most common answer that, that members will give, even pastors will give, is that, well, we keep the Sabbath. Or we have the health message. But here's the thing. There are Seventh-day Baptists. There are people in other denominations that keep the Sabbath. There are people in other denominations that live healthier lifestyles than many Adventists do. They have their own version of a health message. So then what's the main contribution that makes Adventism... Unique. What is the unique identifier? And it's this. The unique identifier of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is the prophetic message that we preach. Now please hear me. I'm not saying that we are prophets, but rather we have been entrusted with a prophetic message that we shout, that we proclaim to the world. But unfortunately... There is a slight way in which we have quote-unquote tainted the beauty and the nuance of the prophetic message that we have been entrusted with. And here's what I mean by that. You see, prophecy is more than just predicting the future. It's more than just knowing how the world will end and how Jesus will return. It's more than just dreams, visions, and supernatural occurrences In fact, the majority of prophecy in Scripture isn't directly predicting the future at all. In fact, the majority of prophecy is showing people the reality of their present situation, warning of what will come if they don't change, and calling them to immediate action. Most of prophecy is not predicting the future, it's rebuking the present. This is why Jesus says a prophet is not welcome in his hometown. Because who wants to listen to the person that's rebuking you all the time? Most of prophecy is correctional. It's to right us and set us on the right path. And many times when God gives a prophecy, it's actually conditional. You think of Nineveh and Jonah where he says, Jonah, preach and tell them 40 days and this city will be destroyed. Well, they turn around, they repent of their sins, and they, and they turn their city to God. And guess what? He relents from his destruction. So much so that Jonah gets angry and he says, God, I, this isn't fair. Because Jonah has such a limited scope of the beauty of God's grace and God's justice. You see, prophecy in Scripture is much more concerned with our present reality than it is our future destination. This is mainly true because what we do in our present reality will directly impact our future destination. But many have focused so much on looking for signs of the future that they've neglected their present reality. And this is the way that many Adventists have tainted the prophetic message that we've been entrusted with. And the beauty of it, we can untaint that part. Because it's not the message that's been tainted, but rather the way we live that has. A 
couple weeks ago, we talked about Daniel 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And God showed Nebuchadnezzar the future so that Nebuchadnezzar would change his behavior and focus now. Revelation's prophecies can and do serve that very same purpose. Our prophetic knowledge should positively drive our present reality. So today we're going to look at the most famous passage in all of Seventh-day Adventist history, Revelation 14. And John here is, is in the middle of a vision about the end of days. And this passage talks much of God's judgment in the state of the world. And it gives us a glimpse into what the signs will look like near the end. And so let's dive in, starting in verse 6 and 7. And as I work through this, I'll explain each portion. So verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now there's something interesting about this, this verse right here. Because in verse 6 he says, the, the, the angels flying overhead with an eternal gospel. And the gospel that that, then the words that come out of that angel's mouth are fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. Normally when we think of the gospel, we think of it in terms of Jesus has come to save you. We don't think of it in terms of Jesus has come to judge people. And to proclaim judgment. But see, the 1800s were when Christianity really started to talk about the judgment of God as being something that is imminent. Prior to the Reformation, you mainly had judgment discussed in terms of death. In other words, God will judge you when you die. That's when your judgment comes. And up until the moment you die, that's, that's, you, you, you've got time to change. And we still talk a lot like that, minus instead of the moment you die, we say, change now, because when you die, you won't have that choice again, and Jesus will return. But God serving as an active judge was usually expressed through his people or through, thing, or through things like indulgences, things like literal witch hunts, the crusades. Those were seen and treated like God's judgment being expressed through people charging to battle, defending the truth, and standing for purity. In other words, God's judgment is being expressed through us as we carry out what he has called us to do, and typically that was done through violence. But the 1800s, with the rise of William Miller, a figure that is no stranger to Adventists, that is when we saw the call about God's judgment. Because William Miller would attempt to predict the second coming of Christ through the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. And that is what specifically drove the message that God's judgment is here because God is coming soon. Amen. That's when that message took form. And this is how William Miller eventually ended up predicting that Jesus would return October 22, 1844. Obviously, Jesus did not return. 
And I've talked about this nuance before. People will say that, that Adventists are just people who failed at predicting Jesus' second coming, but that is not true. While Adventists and Adventism formed from the ashes of that movement, it's notable that we took the significance of prophetic interpretation without actually attempting to predict Jesus' second coming. In other words, at no point in Adventist history did we ever try and predict when Jesus was going to come again. We've simply talked more about the signs that he's coming soon instead of trying to nail down a day. Now, there may be specific Adventists here and there that are convinced that Jesus will come at a certain time. But overall, as a church, as a denomination, and as a movement, we've never tried to do that again. You see, Adventists are not people who tried to predict it and failed, but rather there are people who believed Jesus would come on that day, and he didn't. And eventually, those people would form Adventism as a separate movement. In other words, we were born from the ashes of an old movement. And in fact, William Miller himself didn't even become a Seventh-day Adventist. He never kept the Sabbath. And so we as a church typically see this first angel's message fulfilled directly through the period of the 1800s when God's judgment was being pronounced on the people. Now let's continue in verse 8. Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality or of her adulteries. At the time that John is having his vision, Babylon does not exist anymore. The nation is nothing but a faint memory. So if that's the case, and this is a vision of the future, then what is the Babylon that John is referring to? You see, we typically see Babylon as some combination of these two things. And, and most people land in one camp or the other, but we're pretty unified on it somewhere in this. Which is that it's either the failure of the modern world and the failure of Christianity to stay true to the correct teachings of Scripture. We either fall into the, it's the modern world, or it's the failure of, of modern Christianity to stay true to God's correct teaching. Now, I see it personally more closely associated with the latter. It is the failure of Christianity to stay true to God's teachings. And the reason I say that is because it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine. Well, if it's the whole world that is a part of fallen Babylon, then who were they going to make drink the wine? Who else were they going to corrupt? There's no one left. But if we talk about Christianity, we talk about Christian history, especially during the Middle Ages when, when the Christian church, prior to the Reformation, basically dominated the government structure of the known world. You talk about Christianity walking away from things like the Sabbath, you see Christianity walk away from things like the state of the dead, the correct state of the dead. And you say, look, if we're going to fail to adhere to God's correct teachings, then what happens is this. Babylon is associated with confusion, misunderstanding, and false teaching. In fact, the old Hebrews had a, had a joke. Because Babylon, in Hebrew, I mean, it's literally just an alliteration, Babylon sounds a lot like the word Bilal, which in Hebrew means confusion. And so there was this old joke where they would, they, would, they would merge the two. 
But you see, when it's associated with confusion, misunderstanding, and false teaching, these three things cannot stand the test of time. And the second message shows that whatever stands on those pillars will fall. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. So is Adventism formed? And we have called back to a true keeping of God's commandments and being true to what God teaches. The second angel has worked alongside this movement to call people out of a fallen kingdom. The second angel is calling people out of false teachings and confusion and into clarity and truth. Now listen very carefully because it's easy for you to hear this and to hear me and think that I'm, that I'm preaching that Adventists are the greatest things and the, God's greatest gift to humanity ever. It's not that we are the vehicle that fulfills the three angels' message or the, the second message. It's that Adventism plays a large role in that proclamation. But I'm not saying that Adventism is perfect or that we are perfect. In fact, Adventists can fall into the trap of becoming Babylon just as anyone else can. You see, our beliefs and our teachings, and this is true across the board, no matter if you're a theist or an atheist, an agnostic, a Buddhist, a Hindu, whatever it may be, your beliefs and your teachings will lead to either action or inaction. And if our teachings don't lead and drive us to live like God's people now, then we lose our identity as God's people. You see, God didn't come to save a denomination. He came to save humanity. And certainly there will be people that have never even heard of Adventism in heaven. You see, our knowledge of what is to come should drive us to restorative action now. But instead, there are many of us that have allowed ourselves to become distracted. And when I tell you, when we've, we've become distracted, you might, you might look at me and you might say, well, well, Pastor, what have we become distracted with? Oh, man, the third angel's message is going to be fun for us. Let's continue reading in verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. You see, suddenly the angels' messages turn scary. Suddenly it becomes about God's judgment being violent and God's judgment being full of anger and wrath. Here's what I want you to know this morning. More than anything else, if you believe in Jesus Christ and allow him to be Lord of your life, then you have nothing to worry about. This passage is not meant to instill fear. It's meant to give you knowledge. You see, those who do evil, reject Christ, and reject salvation, receive the mark on their foreheads or on their wrists. 
In Hebrew culture, this essentially means that their thoughts associated with the head and their, their actions associated with their hands prove them to be worshiping the beast, whether they do it intentionally or not. You see, there are three moral agents, but two moral sides. There is Satan, there is you and me, and there is God. Three moral agents, all capable of free choice. But there are only two sides at the end. You're either with God or against. Now here's what I mean by three moral agents. You can choose to serve God, you can choose to serve Satan, or you can choose to serve yourself. And what we see is that most people choose to serve themselves. They say, I'm going to be Lord of my own life. And we might mistakenly think or, or, or teach, and this is all about how it's communicated. We might mistakenly teach that if you're choosing to serve yourself, you're choosing to serve Satan. Listen, there are people that actually and literally choose to, to serve Satan. What I want you to know is that if you're in that middle camp of choosing to serve yourself, neither God nor Satan, the two moral sides at the end are this, you're either with God or against him. Which means that you choosing to serve yourself means that you are not choosing God as your Lord. Meaning that at the end, you've chosen the side that Satan is on. And if you stand against God, then at the end, as we see revelation being fulfilled, then yes, absolutely, eventually you end up serving Satan. And as you choose to serve yourself, not intentionally serving Satan, you're still serving his ends and his desires. You may just not be freely giving up your will to have him dictate your actions. It's a very thin line, but the way we communicate it means everything. Because if there is someone out there, and this is the majority of us, we think, oh, I'm not that bad. I haven't killed anyone. I don't lie a lot. I haven't stolen since I was a kid. There's someone out there that believes that, and you telling them, hey, you're serving Satan, it has two general outcomes. One, it might work. Or two, they scoff at you. But in letting them know that, yes, you can choose to serve yourself, and this is what it means for your life, that's a completely different conversation. But notice, it, always, it all ends up at the same place. And as a result, because people have chosen a path against God, they will be on the receiving end of the punishment in light of God's justice and judgment. Now it's easy to look at verse 11, where it says the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. It's easy to look at that and think that this punishment will actively last forever. But this is not the case. You see, this language that John uses being, being a Hebrew, being an Israelite, knowing the Old Testament inside and out, there is very specific language that he uses here that is a callback to an old verse in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 34, 10, where it talks about Edom being destroyed and the smoke of its destruction rises forever and ever. But see, we literally cannot see Edom still burning and we don't see smoke rising forever and ever. And I know this is simplistic logic and you think, well, that's ridiculous. 
Well, this is my point. We use that same type of literal application to say that, see, the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, so they're going to be tormented forever and ever. The smoke of their torment, and the, the smoke is a, is a, I don't want to say metaphor, but it's basically a word picture. Because they don't have video, they don't have cameras to tell you about destruction or to show you what it means. This meant that their destruction is permanent and thorough. Simple. Their destruction is permanent and thorough. This does not mean that people will be eternally tormented, but it means they will be permanently destroyed. That is a much different outcome. The punishment is still of eternal consequence, but one is simply being wiped from, the exist from existence, and the other is being actively tormented for all of eternity. Listen, the only people that are promised eternal life are the people that accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Amen. The only people that are promised eternal life are those who love Jesus and have accepted him into their lives. Jesus is not in the business of tormenting people for eternity. And if he was, even if God, even if you could prove to me that that was the case, well, I have zero interest in that, I'll just be honest with you. And what I need you to understand about these three messages is that they overlap. These messages are not meant to be a checkpoint. They're not meant to be, we got to the first angels, that was a starting line, then we got to the second angels, so the first stuff is all behind us. Then we get to the third, and now we're at the mark of the beast stuff, and everything behind us isn't happening anymore. Listen, God's people have been proclaiming that God is coming soon since Jesus first left. And they've been proclaiming that the Messiah will come any day now for all of the Old Testament. God's judgment and God's presence and God's coming has been proclaimed throughout all of history. On top of that, the Reformation called people out of the restraints of the Catholic leadership, the restraints that they held the people in, and it called them to freedom. Fallen, fallen. Babylon the Great. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with Catholic people. Please understand that. This is about the teachings of a denomination. This is not about the people. I love Catholics. So please understand, we get into this, we get into this habit of Catholic bashing. It's not who we are. That is not who we are at all. And even beyond that, people have been serving the beast from the beginning. None of this is new, but each message is amplified exponentially in the final days. I earlier said that we allow ourselves to get distracted. Here's how we allow ourselves to get distracted. We focus on the beast and that mark. In fact, I've heard more conversations about the beast and its mark than I've heard about being God's people. In this church, in many churches, I've, I've heard it many times. We're so focused on avoiding that beast. And we don't focus on being God's people. We look at these three verses, 9 through 11, three verses in Scripture, and focus so much on avoiding the beast and its image and, and the mark, and so much on avoiding evil that we forget to do good. 
We forget there's so much more to this than just not receiving the mark. Look, jump back to verse 1. Jump back to verse 1 of, of Revelation 14. Remember, I said the three angels' message takes place in a, an entire vision. And that vision goes back to Revelation 13. But look at verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. These are references to prior visions that John has had. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women. For they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. There are three verses that talk about the mark of the beast and those who worship him. But in this vision, there are at least eight verses that talk about the beauty of being a part of God's people. And we would so much rather focus on those three fear-mongering verses instead of being a part of the beauty and the beautiful family of God. And we get caught up in that. We say, we've got to avoid the warning signs. We've got to avoid those in our lives. Listen, like I said at the very beginning as we jumped into this, the only thing you need to worry about is whether or not you love Jesus and allow him to be the Lord of your life. Because if you believe in him, that mark doesn't matter to you. Because God is always faithful to preserve his people. You see, this vision overall shows us the beauty of God's restorative action for his people. It shows us that he preserves his people and takes care of them. This is far more about being God's people than it is about avoiding the mark of the beast. But we get so caught up in avoiding that mark and arguing over what the mark might be that we forget to love people. And while we sit here arguing, people go ignored, they suffer, and they hurt. And it is in our inaction that we end up becoming more like fallen Babylon than God's people. Like I said, your beliefs and your teachings lead to either action or inaction. Your actions are always a reflection of your beliefs. So if I tell you that I think lying is bad, and I believe that lying is bad, and then I go about lying to everyone in my life, well, then which one do you think I believe? Lying is bad or lying is good? So if I teach and preach that loving people is good, but I never actually do it, what do I believe? You see, we, we claim that we are people that have gone back to God's original teachings from the beginning. But God said this, you, people will know that you are my disciples by how you love each other, not by how you proclaim warning signs. So the greatest of the commandments are these, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets are fulfilled in this. Our prophetic knowledge Understanding that, yes, eternal destruction is coming for those who don't follow Jesus. 
All of, all of that knowledge of our future should drive our present reality, should drive us into restorative action because that is what God has called us to. And that is certainly a part of the teaching of God. And if we are going to be a people that follows God's word for us, that, that, that follows his teachings, then you best believe we should follow it not only in the way we teach, but in the way we live. You see, John does something so interesting in verse 12. It's interesting to me. It may not be for you. I don't know. But listen to verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. And your your version might read differently and say the patient endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. You see, patient endurance has less to do with waiting and more to do with consistency. Jesus didn't say, they will know you are my disciples by your prophetic knowledge and understanding. He said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. When you endure through something, you don't just sit back and wait for it to pass. You keep moving forward. You don't sit on guard looking for the warning signs. You do what you've always done. And you do it until the struggle is over. You see, whenever I sit, I've had asthma since I was about three months or three years old, one of the two. I don't remember that far back. Whenever I've had an asthma attack, I have two choices to endure it. I can sit and do nothing, which usually means that, oh, guess what? I'm not going to make it to the other end of that attack. Or I take my inhaler, I drink some water, I focus on my breathing, and I keep that up until the attack passes. See, patient endurance is not about you sitting back and letting something happen. Patient endurance is about you living a consistent life, doing what you know you need to do. The call for the saints of God to patient endurance is a call to consistent love for our neighbors. And when we focus so much on calling out Babylon, we focus so much on trying to identify the mark of the beast as some sort of RFID chip or a barcode, while allowing our brothers and sisters to die around us senselessly. We are not patiently enduring. We are falling into the traps that the enemy has set for us. You know, I see so many arguments over the translation when it it comes to the mark of the beast, and it says uh, in verse 9, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, I've seen more argument over whether that word is on or in. Is the mark of the beast in our our wrist? Is it in our head or is it on? Will it be physically visible? Will we see it? We get so caught up in this minutia and this detail that we forget to just love people. We forget to just treat people as people. Now, please understand, I'm not sitting here berating you, saying that you have been doing one or the other. You know what you've been doing. Whether you've been loving people or focusing on the details. And listen, there's nothing wrong with being wise and knowledgeable of what's to come. But that knowledge should drive us into restorative action now, because that's the kind of action that God has always taken with his people. You see, ultimately, the three angels' messages are about God leading his people to victory and finishing his work of righteous justice. 
After all, what does it matter if people can do evil and get away with it? Our justice system doesn't allow that. Why would God's? It is not about us avoiding the beast. In fact, the beast is already here. There's no avoiding it. To only focus on the mark of the beast and forget the greater context of this vision and even this chapter is to miss so much beauty. This vision is about victory in Jesus, not about caution in the world. It's a call for us as the saints of God to patiently endure in love because the war was won a long time ago. So my question to you today is this. Is your prophetic knowledge positively driving your present reality? Is that knowledge affecting the way you live your life? Are you more dedicated to sounding alarm bells than you are with loving like Jesus loved and allowing him to be the Lord of your life? On Facebook or through email, are you more concerned with sharing the signs of the end than you are about proclaiming that Jesus loves his people? God's call for your life is not to be driven by the evils of this world and the warning signs of the end. His call for your life is to be driven by his love for you and his presence in your life. And Revelation, all of Revelation, all of Scripture is a reminder of that. And all those hideous, ugly parts of Scripture that we don't like to talk about, that we find confusing, confusing or scary, all of them show us the reality of what happens when the world turns away from God. They're meant as a warning to us to say, listen, this is the end result of what happens. And it can, it's not necessarily that it will, not every single person will do the same terrible thing. But he's saying, I don't want that for you. Instead, I've called you to so much more. And Jesus today is calling you to so much more. So my challenge to you as we close is to let your knowledge of what's to come Drive the way you live your life now. Reveal Jesus' love to people. Point them toward him because he is the one who saves. And I praise him that he is a God that saves.